For millennia, human beings have desired to live forever. This has led to various myths and legends around the world about fountains of youth and rivers that bring eternal life. One of the oldest accounts is recorded by the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century B.C., where he wrote about a fountain of youth found in the land of the Macrobians. That writing led to Alexander the Great seeking the fountain of youth in the 4th century B.C., uh, a fountain that he called the River of Paradise. In Japan, stories of hot springs that could heal wounds and restore youth were also common and are still to this day. Similar stories were prominent among the Caribbean peoples during the early 16th century who spoke of restorative powers in the waters of the mythical land of Bimini. Similar legends have been found in the Canary Islands, Polynesia, and England. Of course, when Americans think about the fountain of youth and living forever, we tend to think of Ponce de Leon, the Spanish explorer in the 14th and 15th centuries that it was said that he believed that it was to be found in Florida. I've been to Florida. It is not a fountain of youth. Have you, have you ever noticed that some of the craziest stories out of our country come from Florida? Why is that? That's some crazy stuff like a man decided to like wrestle an alligator for fun and he got his arm chopped. It's just weird stuff from Florida. There is no fountain of youth there. And in fact, there is no real evidence that a fountain of youth has ever existed um, that can bring healing or bring eternal life. But the desire of such a thing speaks to something. It speaks to the human understanding that we as mere mortals know that there has to be more than just existing for a little less than a century dying and that's it. There's something in human beings that desires something more. C.S. Lewis writes about this longing for eternal life in heaven using what he calls the argument of desire. He says this in Mere Christianity. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby is born or feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Humans feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the current world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This desire we see in the heart of the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 18. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In John 5, Jesus says to the Jewish people that they search the scriptures because they are looking for the secret to eternal life. Church, eternal life is real. It is right that people seek it. The question before us is, what is it and how do we get it? What is eternal life and how 
do we get it? Well, Jesus in this prayer, as we're working through John chapter 17, Jesus in this prayer is going to pray a, a sentence that I think we just need to stop and dwell on that one sentence and that one verse today. Turn with me to John chapter 17. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're just going to read the first three verses. Brother James dealt with those first two verses last week, but I want to read them again for context so that we can flow into verse 3, understanding how he has started his prayer. This is Jesus the night before he dies, what is typically called the high priestly prayer. This is what he prays. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You may be seated. I want to talk about eternal life this morning, and I want to talk specifically in this first point of just what is eternal life. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of broaden out a little bit and look at Scripture in some totality here and deal with what is eternal life before we get into the specifics that Jesus lays out. So after saying what he has said about wanting to glorify God and for God to glorify him, Jesus turns his attention in his prayer to eternal life and how to get it. Now, it seems strange, does it not, that Jesus would define something like eternal life in a prayer to the Father, knowing that Jesus and the Father already know what eternal life is. Right? Jesus doesn't need to pray to the Father. And Father, let me tell you what eternal life is. The Father already knows. But we have to remember that this prayer is not just lifted up on behalf of his followers. It is lifted up in the presence of his early followers to be written down for future followers as well. Does that make sense? So everything Jesus is praying it is not only intercession. He's not only just interceding on behalf of his followers. He's instructing. So this prayer and the reason why we're working through it in this series is not just so that we can be glad that Jesus intercedes for us, but we can actually be instructed by the prayer itself. So it's instruction and intercession. In the book of John, eternal life, the words eternal life are mentioned 17 times. When most people in Jesus' day and in our day, when they think about eternal life, they think about life with no end, don't they? They think about life forever. They think about the, the quantity of life. But the biblical idea is more focused on the quality of life, the kind of life. Here's how it works. It is true that there is an eternal destination that awaits those who believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, we call it the new earth. We're going to talk about it in a minute here as well. 
when Jesus comes back, or we die and we go to the present heaven, we'll come back with Jesus. We will dwell eternally, endless days, on the new earth. When we've been there 10,000 years, we have no less days. No less days. So there is an eternal destiny, but that eternal destiny, what makes it great is that it is filled with the heavenly glory of God. If we dwelled endlessly without the eternal glory of God, I would say that would stink. I don't want to live forever just so I can have a bunch of days. I want to live forever in days that are perfect. I want to live forever in it, with the heavenly glory of God bathing all over me. That is our future. Now, when we speak of eternal life being given to people in the present for me to have eternal life now, what we are talking about is that the life of heaven, that glory that is going to be given in its fullness when Jesus comes back, we are talking about the life of heaven, the glory of heaven beginning in us now. Granted to us at the moment of salvation. So follow me here. We have an eternal destiny of endless days on the new earth with Jesus in the glory of God. Perfect, wonderful. We, we will long for, for another day and another day and another day forever. But what makes that so great is that the glory of God and the life, uh, the life of heaven will be on the earth with us. Eternal life in the present is when that future life that future glory of God, that future life of heaven is given to us in the here and now. That seed is planted in us in the here and now. Are you with me so far? Okay. I mean, if you said no, I'd be like, well, I'll say it again. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. William Barclay says it like this, to possess eternal life. To enter into eternal life is to experience here and now something of the splendor and the majesty and the joy and the peace and the holiness which are characteristics of the life of God. This makes sense, especially in the light of 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, where Paul says that when God says, let there be light in the heart of a spiritually blind person, guess what they see? The glory of God. Why? Because the glory of God is now being given and implanted and put in us. Let me approach this a different way. Let's talk about the same thing, but let's talk about it with a different metaphor, a, a metaphor that Ezekiel sees in a vision. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and we're going to read verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 47. This is a vision that the prophet Ezekiel gets in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 47, starting verse 1. Here's what he sees. He says, Then he, this shining, glorious being, brought me 
back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the waters and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Now jump to verse 12. The the leaves of these trees will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. This vision that is given to him, he sees a river flowing, by the way, from the throne of God. That's what it pictures coming out of the sanctuary. Coming, it, is, it is from God. It is a river of life. And you know how we know it's a river of life? Because the, the river is nourishing the trees, which will never die. So what, what is indicating to us is this is a river of eternal life. Because this river is watering trees that give forth fruit and will never stop. Their, their leaves never wither. And they will be for healing. At first, it's trickles, then it's ankle deep, then it's waist deep, and then he sees a deep river that cannot be crossed. Now, the Jews originally believed this prophecy was about the second temple. Okay, so Babylonian captivity happens. The temple gets destroyed. They're going to come back out of Babylonian captivity, and they are going to rebuild the temple. It is the temple that is around at the time of Jesus. Literally, they call it Second Temple Judaism because it's a second temple that was built. The Jews believed all of this prophecy was about what was going to happen in the temple, that they were going to rebuild the temple, and then the glory of God, the river of life, metaphorically, was going to flow from the temple. The problem is, by the time you get to Jesus... They are still waiting for the glory of God to fall on the temple. They're waiting for the river of life to start flowing from this second temple. They're waiting for it to happen. And it hasn't happened. And and it must be terrible when they find out Jesus is prophesying that it's going to get torn down in 70 AD without the glory ever being in the temple. Except when Jesus was in there. Now, we 
should read Ezekiel 47 and bells and whistles and should be going off in our mind. Ring-a-ding-ding, whatever, flags, red flags, whistles. Something should be alerting you. I've heard that before. That Ezekiel 47 language and imagery, I have heard that before. Well, you have. Revelation chapter 22. Turn with me to, to Revelation chapter 22. The very end of the book. After John has seen the new heavens and the new earth. After he finds out there is no temple on the new earth. Verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me, John, the apostle John, the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What are we dealing with here? What we're dealing with is the prophecy of Ezekiel 47 does not have its yes and amen and fulfillment in a second physical temple. It has it in the new earth. That the eternal river of living water that is healing for the nations doesn't come with a physical temple that was built. It comes on the new earth where we never die. And where, where we are living, not just quantity, but quality. And now there's one more piece to this puzzle, though. There's one more piece to this story. The prophecy's made. The Jews think it's for the here and the now. In a physical temple, we read that its, its culmination, its completion, its ending is in Revelation chapter 22. But then we go, but wait a minute, I've heard language like this from Jesus. Jesus said stuff about water and eternal life and living water. And in fact, we, we actually sang about it at the, in the first song. Yeah. What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 7, verses 37 and 38? He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's not just grabbing this language out of nowhere. He's grabbing it from the Old Testament. The scriptures that he's talking about is from the Old Testament. And he's grabbing the language of a river of living water and he's saying, guess what? You believe in me and it'll flow in you. What does he say to the woman at the well in John 4.14? 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now we've got the pieces we need. Ezekiel 47. The temple of God is going to pour forth living water that is going to pour up into eternal life. When Jesus comes back, the new earth is going to be filled with this nourishing river of water. And guess when it started flowing? Jesus. When Jesus came, 
he began giving this river, he began giving this eternal life water to people. Jesus was bringing the life of God, pictured and symbolized by a river of water flowing from the earth, from the throne to earth. Jesus brings the river because he is the river. Jesus is the river. Keep this, keep this analogy in your mind because we're going to keep using it, right? Keep it in your mind. If you are given eternal life, it has been given to you. You are receiving the life of God, the life of heaven into your being. The life of God into the soul of man, which will transform your life. So you don't get, you can't get eternal life and then just think, oh, well, it's all about living forever. No, when you get eternal life, it transforms the very being of who you are. You become a new person in Jesus. You are brand new. So it doesn't just change now the quantity of your life. It changes the quality of your life. Your life is changed by this eternal water from God. Now, we've, we were back here looking at it broadly. Now let's zoom into what Jesus says about eternal life. Go back to John 17. He says, this is eternal life. That they may know you the only true God. When Jesus says you, he is referring to God the Father. Okay? So we can clearly state eternal life consists of knowing God the Father. Now, many religions tie eternal life to the knowledge of God or the gods. Right? Throughout history, many religions do this. Many religions tie eternal life to the knowledge of God or the gods. Now, for them, it's about, quant it's about quantity only. Right? But here, we're talking about something very different. There are many parallels that we can draw from these other religions, but the closest parallel, we just need to go to the Old Testament. Listen to a couple of these passages in the Old Testament. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed because of a lack of what? Knowledge. He's not talking about my people are destroyed because they don't know how to, they don't know how to fight properly. They just don't have the knowledge of warfare that they need. That's why they're destroyed. Or you know what? My people are destroyed because they just don't know how to build walls around a city properly. You know what knowledge he's talking about? Knowledge of God and his word. My people are destroyed because they do not acknowledge me and my word. That's why they're destroyed. They don't know me. They're idolaters. They're chasing after other gods. They don't know me. That's why they're destroyed. Of course, what does Proverbs 3, 6 say? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The word acknowledge him literally is translated know him. In all your ways, know him 
and He'll make your path straight. And then we have Habakkuk 2.14. He's talking about the evildoers. And he's saying the evildoers do evil and they think they're going to win. Do they not know, and then Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth will will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is coming a day where the thieves and the robbers and the murderers will not win. They won't be here and the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth completely. This lets us know that we're not talking about some kind of pantheistic knowledge, some kind of knowledge of God being equated to nature. We're talking about a personal, intimate relationship with God the Father. We are not talking simply about intellect or information. We are talking about knowing God personally. It implies worship and devotion and faith. There is coming a time, Habakkuk says, when the entire world is going to be filled with this kind of knowledge of God. A knowledge that people are going to be worshiping and devoted and have faith in God. So Jesus believes that knowing God the Father personally and relationally is eternal life. Right? But he adds one more thing to it. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There is an entire thing to be thought about here on why he, called, why he names himself in the, in the third person here. And then the rest of the prayer he doesn't say that. But we don't have time for that. But it's very interesting. But this is the only place in Scripture that Jesus explicitly calls himself the Christ. The addition of Jesus here is revealing to us that it is only through knowing Jesus that you can know God the Father. That's it, church. The way you know God the Father is to know Jesus. And you can't know God the Father unless you know Jesus. You can't have eternal life unless you know Jesus. He says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Go back to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 again. When, when the God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God. So when, when we get eternal life, when our eyes are opened up spiritually and we see and know God, we are given the knowledge of the glory of God, but Paul doesn't stop there, in the face of Jesus Christ. So you don't get the knowledge of the glory of God apart from the face of Jesus. And there are religions all out there that are seeking to have a relationship with God and bypassing the face of Jesus. You don't get God the Father without Jesus. Hebrews, why is this the case? Well, it's because Jesus is the supreme revelation of God to man. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. 
You cannot divorce knowledge of God from the knowledge of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Of course, this is all made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, when is this prayer being offered up? The night before He dies. So the context of all of this is the work Jesus is about to do. So now I, I want to, we got to back up again. We, we backed up, we talked, and we zoomed in, and now let's back back up. If God the Father is sitting on the throne and he's pouring out the river of life out of himself, out of the throne room of God, and it's coming in Jesus, and Jesus is the river of life. He's the one being sent. Jesus is the river of life that's coming from the throne of God down to the earth. And Jesus says, if you drink from the water that I give, you will never thirst again. And it will bubble up into eternal life to you. Then when the new covenant starts after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how does he do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. This, listen, eternal life is an inner Trinitarian work. God the Father has sent the river of life, Jesus. Jesus comes, he does the work of God, and then the river becomes the Holy Spirit that is poured into our lives, giving us eternal life. You don't get eternal life without the Trinity. So Unitarianism, which says there is no Trinity, there is just one entity of God, does not bring eternal life. I don't care how well their church is doing or how popular their church is doing. If you deny the Trinity, you lose eternal life. It is an inner Trinitarian work. And Jesus starts it. You can't have eternal life without knowing God, and you cannot know God without having Jesus, who then sends the Holy Spirit into our lives to give us eternal life. And this is the most transformative thing that can ever happen to a human being. Because it is not just about living forever, which we will. It is about the way we live forever. It is about the glory of heaven being imparted into us. And one day when Jesus comes back, that glory, C.S. Lewis talks about not just seeing the glory, but wanting to somehow get into it. How do you get into it? I don't just want to see it. I want to be a part of it. Well, guess what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? The Bible says we're going to shine like the stars in the universe. Why? Because this glory that has been implanted in us, this eternal life that has been implanted in us, now we will get resurrected bodies, heavenly bodies that will be perfect and forever. And those resurrected bodies will now be basking in the glory of God. So much so that we're going to be shining. We're going to have so much glory. Now it's not just going to be in us, trapped by this physical mortal body. Now our heavenly all-time earth resurrected body is going to be glorified and we are going to shine like stars in the heavens and for the first time this longing that we have had not just to see the glory not just to have the glory in us but to fully bask in everything that it is we're going to be swimming in the river of life for all eternity because it is all about God it's all about God and what does revelation say and I will be with my people 
they will be with me. There's no temple. We're gonna, the earth and the people are going to be the temple. We're going to have the glory of God. It's not going to be in a, in a man-made temple in the Holy of Holies. It's going to be on the whole earth with all of God's people. And you only get it through Jesus. I, I've been preaching to the, to the teenagers lately. I've really been burdened. And I don't know if it's because my kids are, you know, they're getting older. And I was, I was a pastor's, still am a pastor's son. And, and, but as a teenager, I remember wrestling with, like, how do I make this Christian thing mine? You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 from the moment I could remember, I was in church. The moment I could, could, I mean, some of my first memories ever are being at church. So I was raised in a church home. I was always in church. You know, doors were open. We were there. We were, and, and, and I believed what I was told. But then I have to start wrestling with, how do I make this Christian thing Mine. How do I take ownership of this? And so now that my kids are in this place, uh, six, uh, 17, 15, and, uh, and 12, I know that they're going to start wrestling with this, and I know the teenagers wrestle with this. And so I, I just have, have harped over the last month or so to try to make it as simple as possible. Just make it about Jesus. Just make it about Jesus. Everything, we can get so confused about a whole bunch of stuff. But when Jesus starts speaking about eternal life, he just boils it down real simple. It's knowing God and knowing the one God, God has sent, Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. There's going to be all kinds of things we get wrong. We are going to get to heaven one day. And it'll be my turn to sit down and talk with Jesus for a little bit. And I'll say, Jesus, there's this doctrine that I had and I thought long and hard about it and I prayed about it and I tried to work it out and I tried to understand it and I, I taught it because I, I really believe. And, and did, I, did I get that perfectly right? He's going to go, no. <laughs> I tried really hard. Oh, no, I know it wasn't, you know, the spirit was willing. <laughs> And you know, Jesus, there was this tradition we had at our church. And we thought that was the way to do it. You know, it was our tradition. It was the way to do it. Is that the way to do it? Well, there's a lot of ways you could have done it. Oh, wait, our way wasn't the only way? No, no. They do it at Ethiopian church upstairs. They do a lot different than you guys down here do. Okay. Me and Jesus are going to have this talk back and forth about all the, the ways that I didn't quite get it right. But then I'm going to look at him and I'm going to say, but Jesus, I got you right, didn't I? And he's going to say, my son, you did. You got me right. And that is why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> it is not about the other things that you got wrong. It is about getting me. You made it about me, son. That's right. I guess Jesus would say, you made it about me, brother. You know what? 
I think all of us that make it about Jesus are going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't think that is reserved for the best of the best. I think that is reserved for those who make it about Jesus. That have eternal life in them. He's going to say, well done. Well done, my people. Because you made it about me. And if Calvary Hill is ever going to continue to grow and be what God wants us to be in the future, we better be a church that everybody else says, that church makes it about Jesus. You know, they get a whole bunch of stuff wrong over there. I, don't even, I think it's weird. You know, and we'll be like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. If you've met me, you know, I know. If you've met Brother Rick, you know. Brother James, you know, he gets it right most of the time, but <laughs> what's going to be said of us, what needs to be said of us, man, those people make it about Jesus. And when you make it about Jesus, you're going to love him and you're going to love people. So I don't know about you guys, but this eternal life thing, this transformative stuff here and now, it comes with Jesus. It comes because we get Jesus and he brings eternal life into our lives and he transforms us. So it's not just about the quantity. It is about the quality and that quality begins now. And if you're here today or you're going to be watching us, you know, on YouTube or watching us on Facebook and any any other way that you see us and you are saying to yourself, I have never received this kind of quantity of life. My life has never changed. I, I, I live with this hole in me of never being satisfied, of never having joy, of never being fulfilled, then what you need is Jesus. He will give you eternal life. He will give you life here and now that you could never have dreamed of. Come to Jesus. He's got the water where you'll never thirst again. Mm -hmm.